Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. We should fight for justice, certainly, but there's no there's no way to create a utopia this side of the second coming. Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast. My guest today is Rod Dreher, a senior editor at the American Conservative. He's also written and edited for uh, the New York Post, the Dallas Morning News, National Review. He's been on Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, all the things. He's just recently written a book called Live Not by Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents. And I just finished reading this book yesterday, and I have to join my voice with a great many others who are saying that this might be the most important book you read this year if you're a Christian. So I'm very excited to get into this discussion today about this book. So Rod, I want to bring you in here and welcome you to the program, but also ask you, why did you write this book? What was the the inspiration that caused you to pull the trigger and, and write it? Well, I got a call back in 2015 from a physician at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. Uh, we had a mutual friend, and he said, I need to tell somebody this, some journalist this, and you're the one. Turns out that his mother, his elderly mother, was living with him and his wife. Earlier in her life, she had been uh, a prisoner in a communist uh, prison camp in her native Czechoslovakia before practicing her Christian faith. Mm-hmm. And uh, she eventually got out and uh, got married in the U.S., had her son. And she said, son, the things I'm seeing happen in America today remind me of what happened when communism came to my country. Well, that really upset this doctor for obvious reasons. And, uh, and he said that he felt that he had to tell somebody. Well, that seemed really alarming to me, Alyssa. So I, I ended up uh, calling a friend of mine, a man, a Hungarian defector. He and his wife defected from Hungary in the 1960s, and he went on to teach at Cambridge in England, became a, a well-known, world-renowned mathematics don. And I said, Bela, uh, this is what the Czech woman says. Is she onto something, or is maybe she a little demented? And he wrote back right away and said, oh, no, she's telling you the truth. My wife and I are sitting here in our retirement in the U.K., reading the papers every day, watching TV, and saying, this is how it was when we were young, mm. when communism first came here. Well, I, that really alarmed me, because I know these people. I know that they are not, uh, they're not crazy people, that they're really, really solid. So I began over the next few years, whenever I would travel around the U.S. for my, my work or to speak at conferences, if I would meet somebody who grew up in the Soviet bloc, I would just put the question to them. You're living here in America. Uh, are you seeing things that remind you of the bad old days? Every single one of them said yes. Wow. And if you talk to them long enough, they would express their anger that Americans don't take them seriously. The uh, And the main thing they're seeing, Alyssa, is 
the increasing inability to say what you really think without risking your job, without risking your personal reputation or some kind of terrible blowback. And that's not where it's going to end, but that's where it started. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they, I think we have to listen to them because they are the canaries in the coal mine. Yeah. And one of the points in the book that really sort of struck me was what you were just talking about, how in this type of soft totalitarianism uh, type culture, where if you have a specific political opinion or if you have a specific religious opinion and you feel like you can't say it publicly, or even if you feel like you have to lower your voice, you know, that can be a sign that some of these things are, are beginning to be in place. And so your book sort of surrounds this idea of totalitarianism, and you make a distinction between that and what you call soft totalitarianism. Can you can you give us a working definition of totalitarianism and then what a soft version of that might look like? Right. Well, the most basic definition of totalitarianism is a system in which everything is politicized, where you cannot escape politics. Mm. Uh, in that definition, it's possible to have a totalitarian system even within a liberal democracy. Uh, most of our idea of totalitarianism comes from the Cold War, and we think of a place like the Soviet Union or maybe the country in George Orwell's 1984, where the state, the Leviathan state, is in charge of everything, and it uh, compels people to conform by using fear and pain and terror. That's not what we're dealing with here. And I think that's one reason why we Americans can't really see what's happening now and recognize it as totalitarian. Rather than using pain and terror and fear to compel people to comply, our totalitarians are using social pressure and they're using uh, people's fear of losing status and losing access to middle-class comforts Mm. uh, to get them to conform. Uh, It is a softer form of totalitarianism, but it is still totalitarianism. And if you talk to anybody within um, university culture or in major corporations about how this, uh, this, social justice uh, ideology that's taken over, how it silences them, how they are afraid to get on the other side of the social justice warriors Mm. on issues of race, on issues of uh, LGBT and so forth. You will understand why they call it totalitarian. And I think we're seeing a lot of people uh, expressing, even you mentioned uh, towing the line on certain issues like race and social justice. And we're seeing even in major corporations, uh, critical race theory training becoming mandatory in certain environments. Do you think that's that's a part of this? Is that something that is tied in? Yeah, absolutely it is. Uh, you know, on the critical race theory question, it is stunning to me how fast it has taken over corporate America yeah. and even church circles. Uh, it, what it's so amazing to me when I was doing my research on the Russian Revolution and the way the Bolsheviks governed the Soviet Union, I found that their ideology uh, defined good and evil not as something that uh, is within every human heart, but rather something socially constructed. And uh, specifically, they identified the good people as being by their economic class. In other words, they were peasants, they were workers. The bad people were the middle classes, the owners and uh, people in the church. Uh, I quote in the book this incredible uh, document that uh, one of the senior leaders of what would become the KGB sent out in, I think it was 1918, to his agents when they were the, the new Bolshevik government was undertaking what they call the Red Terror to try to murder and imprison all the enemies of the new regime. And he sent out this uh, instruction to them saying, don't go talk to individuals and find out if they have opposed the revolution individually. Rather, just look at their social class, Mm. you know, and uh, that will tell you whether they're good or bad and, of course, punish the bad people. But when you read that and realize that people lived and died or, or would be sent to prison on the basis only of their social class and what they actually did or thought didn't matter, We have something very, very similar happening now. People aren't being killed and aren't being sent to prison, thank God. But when you have an ideology that divides people on the basis of race and says that people are bad and privileged, so on, but simply because of the color of their skin and others are 
seen as good simply because of the color of their skin. We're reproducing the same kind of totalitarian system that destroyed the Soviet Union. Mm. And we've done a couple of episodes on critical theory and critical race theory here on this podcast. But what's interesting is I do apologetics commentary, theological commentary. One thing I've really tried to avoid over the past two or three years is specifically political commentary. But with critical theory coming in, it's become increasingly more difficult to distinguish between what is theological and what is political, because those mm -hmm. lines are becoming so blurred. And uh, so you describe progressivism as a religion. This is what really helped me connect the dots. When I read your book, you sort of solved that conundrum for me, because I think I was viewing some of these ideas as merely political ideas. But you make the point in your book that this is a religion. This isn't just a political ideology. It's actually a competitive religious system. The Marxists, the communists, they always come after the Christians. And so can you talk a little bit about what you call the myth of progressivism and how mm -hmm. that relates with religion. Yeah, this is something that's been around for a long time, for at least uh, a couple hundred years since the Enlightenment. The uh, progressivism says that uh, we are on a linear path through history, that things are getting better and better with each passing generation. And what we're progressing to, uh, they say, is a complete liberation of the individual from all the chains of the past, from history, from religion, from anything that uh, keeps the individual from exercising his or her free will. Now, there are some good things that have come out of progressivism, certainly. You know, I'm talking about going back from the, the Enlightenment to now. But um, the progressives, and Marx picked up on this a lot, uh, progressives believe that history is ultimately moving to a state where we live in the uh, in absolute equality, and the, whatever has to be done to bring about that state is justified because that's the way history is moving. Like, uh, what was the, something that Martin Luther King said that Barack Obama brought up that, you know, about the way the arc of history bends? That is pure progressivism. Mm. Uh, and uh, and look, a lot of us conservatives, I'm a conservative politically and theologically, a lot of us conservatives in America have come to believe the same thing, that ultimately the world is headed for a liberal democracy. And um, I, I, we, we see this in a kind of a religious sense, in the sense of assuming that this is written into the fabric of reality. And so progressives, whenever they find anybody who disagrees with them and who questions this narrative that what they're doing is making the world better and better and better, and it's inevitable, they uh, believe that we are not just wrong, but evil. And I, I have to tell you that when I um, when I was researching the Bolshevik revolution and started reading what the Bolsheviks, uh, the you know, young communists, believed it was astonishing to me the way they that paralleled what the social justice warriors believe. Mm. Uh, specifically, they they believe that there is no such thing as absolute truth; that there is just power and how it is uh, distributed. And they believed uh, their in their ideology with such fervor, Alyssa, that you could really only describe it as religious. This uh, historian, Yuri Sleskin, a Russian-American historian, he wrote this amazing history of the Russian Revolution a couple of years ago. And he described the Bolsheviks as an apocalyptic secular millennial cult. You know, they and, and he draws the parallels between the things the Bolsheviks believed uh, and uh, things that Christians, uh, millennial Christians, believed in revolutionary societies in the past. That helped me so much because it made me realize that, wait, we're not talking about ordinary politics here. We're not talking about the kind of situation where we can sit down and talk things out. We are talking about radical, zealous, uh, pseudo-religion. Mm. You write that most of the revolutionaries came from the privileged classes. Now, this was something, you know, a couple years ago when I first started looking into Marxism and socialism that really surprised me because I think I had it in my mind that this 
this type of ideology was coming from the poor, working class people. But you make the point that uh, the the most sold out people for these ideologies, when we look back through history, um, have been from the privileged classes, which is, mm-hmm. it makes sense of when we turn on the news and we see these rich Hollywood actors in their million dollar mansions advocating for socialism and you're scratching your head going, that doesn't make sense at all. So why do you think this is so appealing to intellectual elites and the privileged classes? Yeah, this is such an important question because as I write in the book, this um, uh, Polish dissident, Czesław Miłosz, wrote in the early 1950s after he defected that it is so critically important for people in the West to pay attention to how elite networks operate. He said that, uh, and, and James Davison Hunter in our own time, the University of Virginia sociologist, he's made the same point that revolutionary change only happens in most cases, uh, only happens when elites uh, take up revolutionary ideas and spread them throughout their networks. So it matters much more what elites think than what the masses further down the the, the, the chain think. This is what happened in Russia. Uh, in the, the 1840s, 1850s, 1860s, uh, though there were Marxists in Russia, they were agitating, but they were limited to the universities and they just couldn't get any traction in Russian society. Uh, and uh, you know, these young people who would go into universities, they had become really alienated from their own traditions, from their own families, certainly from the church. And they saw in Marxism the thing that they could not find in traditional Russian religion. One thing Cheswab Miwash said that's really important to keep in mind he said Americans tend to think of communism as something people only accept because they're forced into it. That's not always true, he said. He said what everybody has in their hearts is a desire for harmony and a a desire for purpose. And uh, even though communism is a lie, it speaks to that desire for harmony, for purpose and solidarity. I think that, to go back to your original question, I think that the reason uh, intelligent people smart people, people of the middle classes and upper classes embrace this sort of thing, is they've thrown religion away, and this gives them a way to deal with their own sense of of guilt over their privilege, and it gives them a sense of meaning without having to affirm traditional religion. In Russia, what happened was, uh, as I said, that none of the privileged classes accepted Marxism at all until 1891 and 1892. That was when there was a terrible famine in Russia, and the czarist government there did not handle it well at all. And that was the first time that people who had supported the system, middle-class people, began to wonder, maybe our Marxist kids have a point. Maybe there's something deeply wrong with the system. And it also became an intellectual fashion to grab onto Marxism in the same way that today People in uh, privileged people, people who lead institutions and professions, are grabbing on to the social justice ideology. It became the sort of thing you needed to affirm if you were going to be part of elite circles. And finally, uh, in Russia, the parents, the older people, did not want to alienate their children. And if maintaining a relationship with their children meant mm. that they had to accept Marxist ideology, well, a lot of them are willing to do that. I think we're seeing the same thing happen now in our country, especially with transgenderism. Mm. We're seeing uh, an elite uh, culture in the media and universities and in medicine embrace transgenderism for little kids. And we're seeing parents being terrified of alienating their children. So they they force it on them or they at least accommodate it and they demonize other parents who question it. I've seen this happen so many times and heard from Parents who are going through this nightmare who feel that they're completely isolated and not even their churches will stand with them because Mm -hmm. the churches are afraid of appearing uncompassionate. Let's talk about churches, Christianity, the state of Christianity as it relates to some of these ideologies. I want to quote your book again. You said, to create utopia, Marxists first had to rout Christianity, which they saw as a false religion that sanctified the ruling class and kept the poor superstitious and easy to control. And also in your book, you talk about the suffering, and we're going to get to that in a, in, a, in a bit, but the suffering that true Christians had to be willing to endure versus the compromise of other people who might call themselves Christians and how that kind of married itself to these ideologies. Why do you think f- 
first of all, why do you think Christianity in particular is such a threat to Marxism? Because Christianity um, says that there is a power, an ultimate power, and an ultimate reality beyond what we see right here. Marxism is a materialist ideology, meaning that it says there is nothing beyond what we can see, touch, and taste, and there, there's no transcendent dimension. And uh, Marxism also says that if we change social conditions, we can change human nature. Christianity says, no, human nature is fixed, and these problems that we see throughout history will recur because of human nature. Uh, and that Plus, uh, Christianity also sanctifies suffering, long-suffering. Mm. Uh, Marx said himself, I uh, forget whether this was a communist manifesto or one of his other writings, but one of the reasons he hated Christianity so much was because he thought that it taught people to accept suffering instead of acting as revolutionaries to destroy the things that were causing them to suffer. Now, you know, it, it can it can be true that some that Christianity teaches passivity in the face of uh, political suffering. I mean, I, we we don't want to say it's completely bogus, but it's also the case that Christianity has a realism about uh, about human life that Marxism simply doesn't. The Marxists tried to create a utopia on Earth because they thought, as I said, that if you just change the material conditions under which people live to make things more equal and so on, then uh, human, all the problems of human nature, all the pain, all the brokenness would go away. Christianity says, no, no, it won't do that because this is part of who we are. And that mm. uh, the only, uh, that it's always going to be with us. We should fight for justice, certainly, but there's no, there's no way to create a utopia this side of the second coming. And, um, uh, it, it denies the fundamental precept of Marxism, which is that we ourselves can be gods. Mm. So there's so much talk about justice in our culture and in the church as well. And I, I wonder if people are often operating under different definitions of what justice is. And so in the book, you write about the difference between the freedom of choice and the equality of outcome. So maybe you can talk a little bit about those two things and why this matters for faithful Christians? Uh -huh. <clears throat> well, you know, everybody wants to see social justice. And I mean, social justice, in fact, was invented in the 19th century by a Christian priest, a Catholic priest, to describe uh, a, you know, justice, not just in individual cases, but across society. And uh, I, I think, though, that we have to be very careful because uh, the social justice as it is described and it is talked about among secular people today uh, sees social justice as a matter of equality of outcome, as you mentioned, and equality of outcome between and among social groups, races, uh, people of, of different sexual orientation and so forth. Um, we have to acknowledge that there are certainly cases in society where certain groups are uh, unfairly discriminated against. No question about that. And we, as Christians, should be working to fight those uh, those conditions. But uh, the social justice can never be justice if it if it contradicts what God has told us in His Word is the correct order of the world. You know, all justice means is the correct ordering of things. I mean, we tend to think of it only in, in criminal terms, but speaking more broadly, uh, when in God's world, a just world, everything is in its right place. And uh, we, if for example, social justice requires us to treat people differently on the basis of the color of their skin, I don't see how that can possibly be reconciled with a biblical idea of justice. And that's what the social justice warriors want. If social justice requires us to destroy the traditional family and to destroy the uh, idea that God's will is that, only, that marriage is only between one man and one woman, then it can't be justice. And this is what I, I think that so many Christians don't understand. And uh, Rene Girard, the, a, a great 20th century intellectual, he died in 2015, he saw, he was a Christian, and he saw the, that the social justice that was emerging in our society today, what is called social justice, was a, a mimicking or a, a, a distortion of Christian ideals in a ways that he identified as of the Antichrist. Now, 
Gerard taught at Stanford University. He was elected to the Académie Française, which means he was one of the great intellectuals of our time. But he, as a Christian, did not mind using these words. Well, what did he mean by that it's of the Antichrist? He said that the Antichrist, when he comes, will come as someone who is being more Christian than Christ. In the, in the same way, uh, the, uh, the social justice warriors uh, believe that they are being more Christian than Christians in standing up for the oppressed and the victims. And uh, so it's a counterfeit, but it's a counterfeit that a lot of faithful Christians are falling for. Mm. Yes. You, you give a lot of history in your book, and you tell stories of uh, what Christians went through specifically in Russia. Maybe you can give our listeners a little bit of that history of when these ideologies came in, how did it affect the Christians, what decisions did they make, and ultimately what were the, the consequences of the various decisions Christians made as far as how outspoken to be, or, or how did they go about their Christian life as these things were taking hold in their cultures? No, Alyssa, thank you for asking that, because half of the book is devoted to just storytelling. Yeah. Uh, I, I went to Russia, I went to uh, some of the former Soviet bloc countries, and just talked to Christians who lived through it to find out what was it like for you, and how, what can we learn from what you went through. I dedicate the book to uh, a Catholic priest. He died in 1990, but his name is Father Tomislav Kolakovich. Uh, and I, I think that he, I didn't even know this man was until I went to Slovakia where he lived and taught, but it turns out he's an unsung hero of the Cold War. Father Kolakovich was born in Croatia, uh, and in 1943, he was doing anti-Nazi work in his native city of Zagreb. He found out that the um, Gestapo was coming for him, so he slipped out of the country and went to live in nearby Slovakia, which was his mother's homeland. And he adopted her last name, Polakovich, to hide out. He taught in uh, the Catholic University there. And the first thing he started doing among his students was telling them, look, the Germans are going to lose this war. But when it's over, the Soviets are going to be ruling this country. And the first thing the communists are going to do is going, they're going to come after the church. So we've got to get ready for it. And what he did was organize small uh, groups of faithful Christians, usually students, who would come together to pray and to study, but also to talk about what was happening in their society around them and how they should act as faithful Christians amid the changing conditions. Now, the Catholic bishops in the country told him, you're being alarmist, you're scaring people, it'll never happen. But Father Kolakovich was not deterred because he had studied the Soviet mindset, the communist mindset, because he wanted to do missionary work in Russia. And so what he did was he spread these groups all across his country. In every town of any size, there was a group of, uh, he called them his family, uh, members of Kolokovich's group who were preparing themselves for the coming persecution. Sure enough, when the Iron Curtain fell in uh, Czechoslovakia, they kicked him out of the country and they came after the churches. Because Father Kolokovich and his and his followers had prepared for this, they became the backbone of the underground church and the only meaningful resistance to communism for the next 40 years. I think in this country, we have got to recognize that we are in a Kolokovich moment. Christians, whether you're Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, as I am, we have got to realize that now is the time to use our freedom to prepare for what's coming. And uh, not only for what's coming, but for what's here right now. For example, uh, these uh, people, when when our, our brothers and sisters in Christ are, are called to stand up within their own companies or institutions and say, I'm not going to live by this lie, and they lose their job, it will be easier for them to take a stand mm. if they know that we've got their backs economic and in real ways, economically, most of all, or we can help them get another job. Uh, these are the kinds of things that I, I learned from the people over there. I also learned how important small groups are uh, to resisting totalitarianism. In Bratislava, the capital of Slovakia, uh, a church historian took me down into a hidden room. It, this is incredible. Uh, he took me to an ordinary house in the suburbs that had been used by the underground church as a kind of a headquarters. The man who lived there was a secretly ordained Catholic priest, but he posed as a worker. In a hidden room beneath the basement that we could only access by going through a tunnel, 
I went in there, and in this room, there was an offset printer that some evangelicals from the Netherlands had smuggled in in the 1980s to help the underground Catholic Church. In on this little offset printer, they printed out prayer books and gospels and catechisms, things like that. The man who took me there, the church historian, had been part of that movement in the 1980s as a college student. And he told me that for 10 years, he and his small group of young men, uh, all faithful Christians, had come to that house. Their job was to bond together for distribution the things that were being printed in the basement that they didn't even know that they didn't even know that was happening there because they couldn't know that that's how the underground church was organized, that if any one of them had been arrested, they would have been sent to prison, but they couldn't uh, betray the Mm. overall working of the church. Anyway, this historian said, you know, that for me was when I felt real freedom in doing this work with my fellow college students. He said, out in the world, we had no freedom, but when we were risking our freedom there to serve Christ and to serve fellow members of the church, by working as part of this uh, this movement, you know, we gained courage. He said, I was really afraid at first, but when I did this with others and I could see their courage, we drew from each other. And we were finally able, uh, after eight years of this, when the underground church called for a public demonstration, the first one since 1968, uh, and the one that led ultimately to the fall of communism, he said, I had the courage to do it because of these small groups. I've learned this over and over, Alyssa, that uh, we have got to come together in small groups where you can trust people. Because you couldn't trust the institution. You couldn't trust the official church in the Soviet Union. Um, people couldn't trust their own priests because the communists had sent all the, the priests who opposed them into prison or killed them and put in KGB informers in the, in the churches. People still had to continue the life of faith despite this compromise. And so they could and they could only really do that in very small groups of truly trustworthy believers. Mm. Well, somebody might be listening to this or watching this and thinking, this is America. I mean, I've got my Starbucks, I'm shopping in Target, you know, this isn't Russia. Uh, But one of the most chilling chapters in your book was one uh, where you talk about something called woke capitalism. And so I'd Mm -hmm. love for you to talk a little bit about that. In fact, when I was reading this chapter, I went into where my husband was working and and I basically said, stop what you're doing and and listen to this. (laughs) And I read him the section you wrote on the power and the influence of technology just as a potential setup for these ideas. Um, So talk a bit about that, if you would. Oh, sure. This is huge. And I think this is how ultimately the soft totalitarianism will uh, uh, entrench itself in American life. Uh, First of all, if you're someone uh, of my generation or or older, I'm 53, you'll remember the end of the Cold War. You were uh, acculturated to the Cold War and its standards. And part of that was believing that the enemy was government, was the the Leviathan state, because that's how it was in the Soviet Union and in Eastern Europe. And here in the U.S., we tended to think that the government was going to be the enemy and big business was, in fact, uh, if not good, at least neutral. Well, that's totally changed. Uh, in 2015 was a, a landmark moment in that when Uh, Big business took the side of LGBT rights activists in the state of Indiana when the state had passed a law that would have given uh, Christians and other religious people uh, an affirmative defense in court if they were sued for discrimination. They would be a religious liberty defense. Wouldn't guarantee that they would win, but it would give them something to stand on. Well, when that passed, uh, the Apple, Salesforce, a lot of major corporations came down on the state like a ton of bricks and said, if you don't repeal this bigoted law, there will be economic consequences. Mm. The state backed down. And uh, and that was a real turning point because this was the first time that major corporations had involved themselves in the culture war at such a level. And uh, it was a real turning point in American life. Now, uh, the not only are... are is uh, our major corporations uh, the primary driver of wokeness of the social justice ideology, but uh, technology, as you say, is a big part of it. I write in the book about uh, something that has been called uh, surveillance capitalism. This uh, former Harvard Business School professor, Shoshana Zuboff, wrote about how 
in the early part of this century, Google developed a business model uh, based on harvesting data, even uh, me seemingly meaningless data from the interactions every one of us has with the cloud every day, with our laptops, with our smartphones and so forth, or every time we use our credit cards or, or debit cards. And what they do is they, they collect all this data and they develop algorithms to search through it and figure out what we like. So they can figure out how to better sell the things or market things to us. This is all done completely legally and it became hugely profitable. Amazon uses it, Apple, they all use it. Well, the thing about this is the Chinese do the same thing, the communist Chinese, and they use it in an incredibly nefarious way. They have something there called the social credit system. Uh, in China, they have used their technology to perfect the police state in ways that Stalin and Mao Zedong never could do. In China, they, each citizen has an electronic profile. Uh, that the government sets up for them. And every day, the government collects this vast amount of data from every single Chinese person using the internet. And you have to use your phone to buy things now because China is almost completely a cashless society. So every transaction you make, you have to use your smartphone and all of it creates data that gives the government a profile of you. So the government computers know when you've done something they consider socially positive, like, um, you know, going to a communist party meeting or downloaded the speeches of Xi Jinping, the leader. But it also knows when you've done something negative, like go to church because it can follow your GPS coordinates right. or socialize with people they, it considers bad. It keeps a running uh, social credit rating of you, like our, our own credit score, that tells people, and it's all public, whether you are reliable or trustworthy, a good citizen or not. The higher the social credit rating, the more privileges you have in Chinese culture. The lower the social credit rating, the fewer privileges you have. Your kids can't go to college. You can't travel. You can't even shop in certain places. The idea is to use this non-invasive in the sense that you don't, they don't have to send secret police to your door to tell you what to do. But the system itself key, uh, keeps you uh, conforming. And in fact, if your own relatives and friends, if you have a low social credit score, they have to cut you off completely in order to protect their social credit score. Now, we could do this here. I, we're already, our system, our companies, not the government, but corporations are collecting all the data that's possible to implement this sort of system here. And in fact, in China, it's popular with people because they don't know who they can trust. Civil society has broken down, has been broken down so much by communism that people actually like having this measurement of who is trustworthy. I think we're gonna see the same thing happen here, not only because it allows corporations uh, to enforce social justice orthodoxy, but it allows people who, this, who only want to do business with those they consider to be good, and these are left-wing people, it allows them to avoid and marginalize Christians, conservatives, and other deplorables, and so that they can't participate in the economy. We're already seeing in England, uh, we're seeing banks uh, refuse to do business with people they consider to be political extremists. Now, some of these people who've been denied accounts really are political extremists or unpleasant people. They're all on the right. But if we set the principle there of a bank refusing to allow someone for political reasons to participate at the most basic level in the economy, it's a terrible precedent because all they'll have to do is move the line a little bit to include people mm -hmm. like you and me. Uh, and people, most Americans just do not see it coming. They can't imagine that it could happen here. But as Solzhenitsyn warned, the worst thing you can do is think that what happened in Russia can't happen anywhere on Earth. It reminds me of a meme I saw going around social media probably a year ago, where on one half of the picture, you have this woman from the 60s on her phone, you know, the corded telephone saying, well, I don't want to say too much because the government might be tapping the phone. And then on the right side of the meme, you have a guy talking to his Amazon device saying, hey, if I say her name, she'll answer me. But hey, what's, you know, hey, wiretap, what's the recipe for pancakes? And that's kind of where I think people are. It's like, we know that, that there's this access to all this information. But we just, I don't know if we just value humanity too highly or we value human depravity too lowly, or I don't know what it is, but why yeah. do you think we're so complacent? 
we value convenience, mm. you know, and this is how it's happening. Look, uh, let's say if, if uh, somebody from the government came in and with a smart speaker and said, look, we'd like to install this in your house. It'll make your life easier in some ways, but it'll also be listening to your conversations and recording them and passing them on. But uh, we passed a law saying that we can do this. We slammed the door in their face because we know how where this is ultimately going. But if it's sold to us as uh, something we choose on our own uh, for our consumer convenience, we pay Amazon to send it to us. I, in the book, as you know, I talked to a, a woman named Camilla Bendova in Prague. Uh, she and her husband had been part of the underground dissident movement. And uh, in fact, he uh, he's dead now, but uh, he in the 80s went to prison for four years for his work. But her name is Camilla. And Camilla told me that she said, I just don't understand why so many people today are so willing to be free with their information. She said, if you had lived through what we lived through, you know that there is no such thing as innocently gathering this information. They will use it against you someday. Mm. And she pointed out, Alyssa, on the wall there in her living room, she said, look over there. And there were like scars on the wall under the paint. She said, that's where my husband and I, after the fall of communism, ripped out the wires that the secret police had put in the house to bug our whole house. She said, it's just breathtaking to me that young people today and people in America don't even think about that. They say that this information could never be used against us. We're not guilty of anything. Why should we worry about it? It doesn't matter if you're guilty of anything now. If they have the information, they can put it, they, they can find a reason to persecute you. This is part of the message they're trying to say to us. Well, I'm glad you brought up Camilla because one of the great things about your book is you kind of spend the first half of it setting up the problems, the ideologies, what to be looking out for, how this has happened in the past. But then toward the second half of your book, you're giving us so much hope. And, and frankly, I just found it so inspiring and filled with hope because you're essentially giving Christians mm-hmm. a guidebook on how to resist these ideas, how to live in the truth, biblical truth, stand for the Christian worldview. And uh, so one of the ways that you encourage us to do this is to value nothing more than truth. And it just makes me think of Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, the life. Jesus is the truth. So if we value Jesus, we need to value truth. And so what role does does truth play in all of this? Mm-hmm. Well, the title of the book is Live Not By Lies, which I got from a, an essay that Alexander Solzhenitsyn sent to his followers in the Soviet Union just before the Soviets expelled him in 1974. And uh, his point was that the entire Soviet system was built on lies, on uh, everybody having to agree that what they're all, what they're seeing and what they're living through is true when they know good and well it's not. And everybody was too afraid to speak the truth. Uh, And he said that if we can't overturn the system, said Solzhenitsyn, but one thing we can do is refuse to cooperate in the sense of making them think that we agree with them, that we, we accept these things as true. And he said that just simply fighting, refusing to go along with a lie was a way of saving your integrity and it's a way of instilling doubt in the system among other people. As I write in the book, Václav Havel, who was um, the leader of the uh, underground dissidents in uh, Czechoslovakia, he was not a a Christian himself, but he was a brave man. He wrote in an essay uh, shortly after Solzhenitsyn wrote about the importance of what he called living in truth. He uh, brought up the example, the fictional example of a greengrocer under communism, a man who owns a fruit vegetable stand. He said, what happens if uh, everybody in that city has to hang a sign in their window saying, or shop window saying, workers of the world unite? That's the communist slogan. Uh, none of them believe it, but they all put these signs there to so that the government won't harass them. So they'll be known as conformists. Well, what happens if the greengrocer takes the sign down? Well, the government comes there. They maybe close his business down. He can't work anymore. His kids won't be able to go to college. He becomes a non-person. But he has shown by his willingness to accept suffering uh, for the truth, he has shown that it is possible to keep living with, with integrity within this system. And even though most people may not follow his example, there will be others who say, you know what, if he can do it, if he can do the right thing and stand for the truth and he's willing to take the consequences, 
then maybe I can too. And ultimately that will bring down the system. Well, I, I think that's a powerful lesson to us today. Uh, you know, whenever we see people in, in corporations or in schools and colleges having to uh, mouth these things that we know are lies, uh, having to do with social justice ideology, if we can find the courage within ourselves to say, no, I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to sign my name to that. I'm not going to promise that. And we are willing to take the consequences, then we will show others that it is possible to join us. And if enough people join us, then we can overturn this sort of thing. But this commitment to truth, this is one thing that both Solzhenitsyn and Havel, one a believer, one not, they both share this fundamental orientation towards the truth. And that became uh, the bedrock of their resistance. And so much of this happens uh, at the level of the family. So you have a, a big section about family, and you mentioned Camilla, and I think mm -hmm. her husband was Vaclav. Is that how you say it? Vaclav. Vaclav. Raising six children in Prague, uh, after, even after the uh, Czechoslovak state sentenced uh, the husband, Vaclav, to four years in uh, prison for his activities fighting for human rights. And so you were able to interview Camilla, and she shared about some of the things she did with her children, because it's. I think it's interesting to note earlier you were talking about how these Marxist ideas and these communist ideas largely came in through the schools. The kids would, this, mm -hmm. this was kind of coming in through the kids in a lot of cases. Yeah. So how can, what, what advice did Camilla give uh, Christian families to stand against this stuff as we're raising kids in a culture that's kind of hostile to Christian yeah. beliefs on these things? Oh, it was hugely practical. Um, Camilla is herself an academic. Her husband, I think he was a mathematician. She was a, a philosopher, philosophy professor. Uh, and they raised their kids always to know that we are not like this world in which we find ourselves, that we are Christians and we are not communists. And so one of the things they would do is they would teach the kids about when they went out into the world and especially at schools, that the things they're being told are lies. And that they knew the, the Benda family, the mother and father, knew that they had to do this. Otherwise, their kids are going to be programmed by the broader communist society and communist schools. But it wasn't enough just to tell the kids what was evil in the world. They also had to give the kids and fill their moral imaginations with an idea of the good. And this is where Camilla came in. She told me that even when her husband was in prison and she was working these long days, she would always read to her children for two hours every night. And uh, I, I mean, she was telling me that's in their apartment in Prague. And I mean, these are like 12, 14 foot ceilings with bookshelves everywhere. These are real Eastern European intellectuals. I asked her, you know, what did you read to them? She said, well, I read to them the kind of things they weren't getting in school. I read to them the classics. I read to them myths. So they would have an idea of the heritage that we, uh, of, of being part of Western civilization, the things that were their inheritance that were being denied to them by these ideologues in charge of the schools. And she said at one point, I also read them a lot of Tolkien. I said, Tolkien, my Tolkien. She said, because we knew that Mordor was real. Yeah. And she said, and we wanted our kids to know that this, this battle that their parents were engaged in and their parents' friends, it was like what uh, you know, Frodo and the others fighting Mordor. And that was a way that children could conceive of, of these really complicated things happening in their family's life and in the life of their country. They could conceive of it through the telling of Tolkien's myth. And they also, and also in the book, I talk about uh, to some of the adult children of the Bendis, and they said their father showed them the movie High Noon with Gary Cooper about the one man who stands bravely when nobody else will stand against the enemy. He stood. And that they they internalized that these children to, to and came to believe that this is what a good man or a good mm. woman does. They act like this. This is such an important point, Alyssa, because you know it, it shows that it's not just that the fight we, we have. It's not just political. It's moral. It's spiritual, and it's a fight within the imaginations of our children and ourselves. Mm. So it's not simply enough to say, those are the evil people, let's go fight them. We also have to have an idea of the true, the good, and the beautiful poured into us to fill our imaginations. And uh, one of the great things about the Benda family was, as you mentioned, communism fell in 1989, but the Czech Republic became and is one of the most atheistic countries in Europe. 
But all the Benda kids, they're all grown now and they have families of their own. All of them are still practicing Christians. And it all began with the the family, the, the, the practices laid down by that family under communism within the, the walls of their apartment. That was something they could control. They couldn't control yeah. what was going on in the public square, but they could control what was happening in their own home. And that's where they built up the, the, this faithful Christian imaginations within their children. Well, you're right. It's such practical advice because I have a 12 year old and a nine year old. And I, you know, when they were younger, I was a lot better about this. We read The Hobbit and we read, you know, the Gospels at night and, and all kinds of stuff. And I realized even I had gotten into this lazy pattern of, okay, here's my phone. Just, you know, knock yourself out. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and it's so easy to do that. But after I read your book, I was like, okay, kids, 730 is reading time. We're going to start this again. Yeah. So just even trying to do little things like that uh, to spark their moral imagination. And, and even as I, I think in American schools, we're seeing, we're losing a lot of literature and we're losing a lot of the things that I grew up having in my educational system. You know, kids in the public schools here are generally not getting. So that's a, just a great little piece of advice. Uh, in a moment, we're going to continue this conversation uh, for our Patreon subscribers. We're going to talk a little bit about suffering and some of the questions that Patreon subscribers have. If you are not a Patreon subscriber, you can go to patreon.com slash Elisa Childers. You can check out the different tiers. If you select tier four, that's going to give you access to the bonus content. Tier two is going to give you early access to podcasts. There's transcripts, all kinds of different things you can choose from. So definitely go on there and uh, check that out. And so again, select tier four to to hear more from Rod today from this conversation. But Rod, as we close out this portion of of the interview, what encouraging words would you leave uh, our listeners with today as as they might even just be processing some of this stuff for the first time? Mm-hmm. Well, the, the most important thing to keep in mind, I guess we can, we'll talk about this in the next segment, is suffering matters. Mm-hmm. All the Christians I talked to o- over there said that if we, if the church in America is not ready to suffer for the faith, then it's not going to make it. But here's the, the amazing thing. All these people who suffered, um, even those who suffered torture, they're all joyful people. Yeah. And they, they testified that in prison were some of the, the most joyful times of their lives. Not happy, but joyful, because that's when they really knew who the Lord was, and because they, they had to depend completely on him. And, uh, and they realized that uh, if they were, if they were deeply committed to the Lord and living in, pray, in unity of prayer with him, then the world could not overcome them. And the joy these people have, the deep inner peace that passes on all understanding, it came out, it was refined in them through suffering. So mm-hmm. there is hope there, but if we seek to avoid suffering at all costs, we will have neither joy nor peace. Mm-hmm. The book is called Live Not by Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents. Rod, where can people connect with you online? Well, I write a daily blog at the AmericanConservative.com, and I also write a Substack every day in which I try to find hope and, and look to good things that feed our souls during this time, because I'm often writing about destructive things going yeah. on in the world. And that's at RodDreer.Substack.com. And I'm also on Twitter at RodDreer. Great. Thanks so much for being here today. It's been great. Hey, thanks so much for watching or listening today. If you found this content helpful, please go on over to iTunes and leave a great review, or you can subscribe and click the bell icon on YouTube to know whenever we release a new video. If you want to find out how you can come alongside the ministry in a more meaningful way, check out patreon.com slash Alisa Childers. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.